Good morning, Harvest. Y'all can grab a seat. Uh, my name is Josiah, one of our pastors and elders. Good to uh, meet each of you I haven't met yet. Uh, what a privilege it is, really meeting you. We're really close now, aren't we? Uh, what a privilege it is to open God's word to us this morning, for, for God to have taught and convicted me all week long. And uh, just wanted to welcome you. I hope your Christmas was great. want to welcome you back from the fog. And what do I mean by the fog? The fog happens right after Thanksgiving. And the fog is, is expectations that we place on ourselves to experience everything we've dreamed we experienced when we were kids. And, uh, and when we're kids, Christmas just happens, right? The tastes and, and senses, the smells and sounds, they just happen. And at some point in life, I'm past it now with two littles. I don't know exactly when it happens. Some of you start helping as children. Thanks, Mom. I didn't. Uh, but at some point you realize there's a lot of work that goes into celebrating. Uh, celebrating can be a little tiring. And so I just wanted to say welcome back from the fog. Happy New Year. Excited to, to think about what God might do. And, uh, you know, we get a little tired sometimes celebrating Christmas, but I just think about how worthy he is of our tiredness. Uh, and not just the, the commercialized tiredness that we probably put on ourselves, but any moment we try to celebrate what God has done in becoming man is worthy of our effort and is worthy of being tired. I was just thinking how God was in heaven in perfect robes and he gave those up for low count thread swaddling clothes. He was sitting in perfection on a throne receiving glory and he gave it up for a splintery manger. There's these angels called cherubim, for those of you who might be new, and they have six wings. Two of them they use to cover their feet to honor God. Two they use to cover their face and two they fly around saying holy, holy, holy to one another just to try to honor God as much as he needs to be, deserves to be. And yet Jesus gave that up to be welcomed by smelly shepherds straight from the field. He had perfect power and he gives it up for incredible vulnerability. And he had complete sovereign control and yet he tells his followers one day he doesn't do anything the father doesn't tell him to do. He gives it up for complete dependence. And so let me just say that any tiredness we might feel, what a, what a good tiredness. How worthy is our God to be worshiped and celebrated. And as we think about that moment when God became man, the word amazing finds its rightful use. And the, the only thing I can even potentially compare, which doesn't really compare, is the birth of our first child, my daughter Emily, who's four. I remember after 20 or so hours of labor that I had very little to do with, and thank you, Sarah, and uh, after incredible pain and all sorts of challenges that I will spare you from, Emily came into this world. And again, I thought for the first time, I've been misusing this word amazing my whole life. This is what this is. And this morning, I want us to talk about something related. You know, we didn't stay at the hospital. The hospital was nice. You could, the baby would leave for the evening and cry somewhere else, and you would try to sleep on the little tiny couch. That's, they later told me would it spread out, but that's not the point. I'm not, I forgive them. I'm not bitter. But uh, 
You know, and then we came home and by the Lord's mercy, my mom and Sarah's mom spent about a week, week and a half with us. And then there was another question when they left. It wasn't so much as, man, this is amazing. It was, oh no, what do we do now? There's a baby still here. She doesn't speak English. We don't, we don't know what to do. She contributes very little uh, at that time. And that's our question today. We're going to talk in Matthew 2 about what happens after we celebrate the baby. What do we do with who the baby is? And our story from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, that we're going to talk about here in just a moment, it's a story of three responses to Jesus' kingship. You see, he didn't just come as a baby for us to celebrate and think, oh, isn't that nice? While he was still a baby, he was king of kings. And our story about these wise men that come and visit him this morning, this story shows us three responses. In them, hopefully, we will see that it is worth it to fight for communion with God over our own perceived control. And hopefully, we will see as they show us that it is worth risking our comfort to be a part of God's kingdom and what he's doing. So, I do have one quick confession for us before we read our passage. I really love New Year's. I get excited. I think I'm going to lose all the weight and do everything I think every year. And none of you cynics who call yourselves realists can ever convince me otherwise. I am convinced that everything's going to be different and there will be change. In fact, Lord loves me so much he had me marry one, uh, a realist, not the cynic one, a, a realist <laughs> so that she might balance out some of my ridiculousness. And I'm thankful and praise the Lord for that. But whichever way you're wired, this time of year brings out this potential hope or at least awareness that I want to change, that I need to change, that, that all is not yet perfect, that even if last year was great and worthy to be celebrated, there's, there's also, I hope, for a little bit more. Or I hope it's similar in certain ways. And so this time of year asks two questions that are important for us. One, it asks what do we want most? I'd love you to take just a moment and imagine, we're good at wanting, imagine God gave you this year everything you want. He gave you everything that you desire. I imagine there would be some incredible things the Lord would do, but I also love New Year's because it's a reminder every time to check what I want because you know whose kingdom would be furthered quite a bit if God gave me everything I wanted? My own. And I imagine a few of you are similar. And New Year's helps us consider, what do I most want, which reveals to me my hope? And it also makes me think, what do I think will get me there? And it reveals my trust. And so this morning, if you would stand, we're gonna read Matthew 2, 1 through 12. We're gonna hear this story and it's a simple story, but my expectation is that that Holy Spirit we invited in in that song a minute ago and that was welcomed in everything we've done so far, that, that he wouldn't let it remain a simple story, that he would sink it deep into our hearts that we might change in the only way anyone can change because we're in the presence of God this year more and more. So let's hear as I read this from God's word starting in verse one. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may be seated. This is the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said, praise be to God. Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you and praise you that you wrote this simple story. This prophecy that you fulfilled after hundreds of years of waiting and where Jesus would be born. Lord, we praise you that you are the one who will lead us into this next year. Lord, you are the one who led us through this last one. Father, we ask that those who might not know you would see in this story that there's a better king than ourselves. That we would be reminded who know you that we don't want to trust in ourselves. That you've offered us a better hope than what this world alone can give us. Lord, might you call us into your presence as we hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we talk through this story, we need to understand the characters and, and the, the, the setting. There's a couple important places for us to consider. First, we have Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a suburb of Jerusalem. It's about five or six miles south of Jerusalem. And I live in East Memphis, about 10 miles away, so halfway home. It wasn't a really important suburb by the time Jesus was born, but at other points in Israel's history, it had been. The book of Ruth takes place. Uh, near Bethlehem, and ultimately, the most important way that Bethlehem is remembered is King David, the, before Christ, the, the one who had been the shepherd ruler of his people, was from there. And God had prophesied and said that the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior, would come from Bethlehem, would come from David's line. And so it's important that we understand that Bethlehem was the seat of messianic hope. And then we see Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital. It's the seat of Roman rule over the Jewish people at this time. And it's the primary place of worship as the temple is there. And the priests and the scribes who we'll hear about in a moment. And then thirdly, we have the east. And I believe that it's intentionally left vague. That the main point would be clear that God isn't saying, hey, I love Babylon or Assyria or some specific place east. But God is saying, even though those closest to me in Jerusalem do not yet see and worship me from the ends of the earth, I draw those to know me and worship me. I think God is answering that question. What about the one who's never heard? 
And he's answering it decisively saying, there is no one who would be mine who I will not draw no matter what it takes. And he's saying, not only do I love the least of these, the shepherds that, uh, that come to Jesus's birth, but I also love the ends of the earth. He's saying the east, and he leaves it vague. Many believe that Babylon is possibly where it was. Daniel, who you read about elsewhere in the Bible, was trained as a wise man, as a magi, there in Babylon during Israel's exile when Babylon ruled over the Jews. And so a lot think that it's possible that these magi came from Babylon, and I just mentioned that to, to point out that that was 900 miles from Jerusalem. God had spoke, and they were following they were doing whatever it take, took to get to find out if this promise had come true as a Messiah, with a Messiah being born. And then there's a few important people. First, we have Herod the Great. Herod was the ruler over that area. He called himself king of the Jews, as we'll see to be important in a moment. He was a great builder. He built a lot early on in his uh, rule, but as his rule continued, he became more and more cruel, more and more insecure. He ended up killing a number of his own sons because he thought they might rise up and take control away from him. Emperor Augustus even said, it is better to be one of Herod's pigs than his sons because as one who had claimed to convert to Judaism, he would show mercy to his pigs, but only cruelty to anyone who challenged him. And so we also have in Jerusalem, there's a couple types of people mentioned. There's the, the chief priests, and there's only supposed to be one. The plural there is important because it tells us that Herod has usurped the authority that God has given a priest. A chief priest was supposed to serve for a lifetime, and yet there was a number of them there because Herod had taken control of what was happening religiously there in Jerusalem. And then there was the scribes. These were the teachers of the law. Usually the chief priests were Sadducees and the scribes were Pharisees. And I only mention that to help us understand they didn't like each other very much. And yet in a minute when Pharaoh comes to them and asks them separately, where is this Messiah to be born? They agree perfectly. They say, in Bethlehem. And then there's just the people in Jerusalem as a whole. In verse three, it says that they're troubled along with Herod. And they're the ones who are honestly just most affected by Herod's mood. And so it's good to see that there's these people in Jerusalem that we must consider. And then lastly, there's the wise men. And so there's a, a few false bits of information that have got out about the wise men. There's the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And unfortunately, they, they weren't three or kings. Uh, they were counselors in the court of a ruler, most likely, and as Magi, they studied astronomy, astrology, interpreting dreams. Ultimately, they tried to help the king have whatever knowledge they could possibly find so that he could make better decisions. So they were in search of truth in some unique ways. Um, the gifts are very important that the, that the Magi, the wise men bring, but they're mostly important not because of what they specifically are, but because they're the type of gifts you give to a king. And so just, I know our nativity scenes, we've all got to go home and change them now and like move the wise men like roughly 900 miles away. But, uh, but I just wanted us to understand that these men were listening to God. They were willing to follow and they were searching out the truth. And those, those, those are the characters, those are the, the setting. And then there's a story. I want us to just walk through this story and notice a few things as we do so. Ultimately, what we see here is that 
accepting Jesus' arrival is good, but our challenge today is which of these three types of people will we be as we respond to his kingship and not just his rival, his arrival. So first, in verses one through three, the wise men come to Herod with gifts and with worship, but he's not allowed to open the gifts and they don't bow down to him. They come to the king and ask where the king is. They come to the one who wants to be worshiped and says, we wanna go find one worthy of worship. They come to the tyrant and look for the true king. We also see in verses one through three that the people in Jerusalem tremble. It says Herod is, what's the specific word, sorry. It says Herod was troubled. A better word might be terrified. Herod was shaking. He's one who looked like he had so much power and yet he was so incredibly insecure. He claimed to have all authority and yet just the threat of the possibility of a promise of a baby who would be king set him off. And the best illustration I could think of this, I loved Michael Jordan growing up who is uh, the best basketball player of all time in my mind. I know those of you younger than me know some others, but Michael Jordan at the time of his Hall of Fame speech was unquestionably the best basketball player of all time. He had all the power, if you would, when it came to what it meant to be valuable and, and of worth in that career, in that field. And yet, there was a very sad moment that by God's mercy actually broke some of that hero worship I had as a kid. When he gave his Hall of Fame speech, it was so full of insecurity and desperation. His high school coach that had once cut him, he had to drive him deeper into the ground. He had to mess with the people that he played well against and talk trash to them and say, you still couldn't hold me. In fact, he was talking about, I shouldn't even be retired. I should come back and still be the best. He was desperate to be seen as valuable. He was desperate for control, for power, even when the world would say he already had it. And Herod reminds us in these verses that we too sometimes are desperate and our insecurity reveals our thought that we can control what's coming. And we'll keep moving. Verses four through six, they show us these religious leaders, they report back to Herod. He asked them where this baby's to be born because the wise men are wanting to know and they come back and they say something that, that doesn't look sad until you think about it. The religious leaders, they tell him it is written by the prophet, he's in Bethlehem. Well, I imagine these religious leaders in the center of worship with a people waiting on a Messiah that was promised to come, at one point they probably wanted to do more than say it is written. At one point they probably wanted more than information about the Messiah. They probably wanted to experience him. They probably wanted to see the fulfillment of that promise. And yet these magi from the east this vague area, they travel 900 miles to see if the promise has come and these leaders won't go five miles to see if it's true. They're apathetic or they're afraid or both. The one who is preeminent before their eyes is Herod the Great. Their fear is driving them and it's driving them to miss out on the opportunity to experience Jesus. 
We'll come back to that. Also in this, we see that there is a quote in verse 6 from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I'm going to read you that quote in Micah. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. One good thing to do as you're reading the Bible, if you see an Old Testament quote, to, to look it up, to see what does it say, what's different, what's the same, how did God fulfill what he promised. All of Matthew 2 is over and over again God fulfilling promises that he has made, the main one for our text being that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And we see here as well, it said Bethlehem was small, and, that it, and yet the quote, the way Matthew does it says, you are by no means least among the rulers because there will be a ruler who comes from you. You who once were small, you've been made great because of him who's from you. Just as God told the Israelites, he chose them because they were the least of these that he might glorify himself. Just as he tells us that it is our weakness that qualifies his glory to be shown through our lives. God is again and again Every time we read his word, challenging, encouraging us, directing us towards what he wants. And we see one thing. He left out the part about this being from of old. And when you bring those together, you see Jesus is not just coming here in this time. He's been coming from the beginning of time. He's been coming from ancient of days. And we also see one thing. This, this is a ruler who will shepherd my people. And you see a contrast between Jesus, the shepherd ruler, and Herod, the tyrant. We see first that Jesus is the true ruler, even though they think he's an illegitimate son. And, and Herod, who looks like the true ruler, is actually full of illegitimate power. We see that Jesus is the shepherd, whereas Herod is cruel. And we see that Jesus, as a baby who looks so vulnerable is calmly resting in his father's arms in a manger. And yet the one who sits on a throne with supposed power is trembling on that throne. And we're reminded where real authority and control is. Verses seven and eight, they remind us that Herod is planning his attack, that his fear and insecurity, they've made him into one who would kill his own sons and soon kill all the baby boys in the area around Bethlehem. That he didn't set out to be a tyrant. He didn't set out to be this cruel, but his ultimate value and priority was his own control. And he would do whatever it takes to maintain that facade for as long as he could. In verses nine through 11, we see that the Magi are led to Jesus. They've been traveling 900 miles and then the climax. They don't just get to hear about him. They don't just get to see a star. They don't just see it written in a book. They get to see Jesus with his mother Mary in person. They get to see God become man. And two things happen. And they're the same two things that happen every time we enter the presence of God through the power of his Holy Spirit. It had never, this, the experience of God had never been like this, but then Jesus tells us it's gonna be even better when he leaves because he's gonna send us the Holy Spirit. So these two responses, we understand, yeah, of course, you just traveled all that. You've waited hundreds of years. Of course you respond in these ways. But Jesus tells us that our experience can be even greater. So the two things that happen first, it says they 
rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. He can't fill up the sentence enough with the word joy. When you enter into his presence, you see, his, you see just this joy that you've always hoped for. Psalm 1611 tells us that in God's presence are pleasures forevermore. And then secondly, they fall on their face in worship. Similar to Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord in his court. Similar to numerous stories throughout the Old Testament and New, whenever anyone is in the presence of God, they fall on their face. So every time, saints, we're invited not just to see it written, but to experience this. We're, we're invited through the written word, through fellowship with one another, through the preached word, through the sung word, through all of the methods that God has given us. We're invited not just to see it, that it was written, but that it has come, that our king is here. And the Magi, they show us what that's like. And they give him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Same gifts you guys all gave to your baby, you know, nephews and nieces, right? There's something about those gifts, they're really bad for a baby. <laughs> what is he gonna do with them? But they're really good for a king. They're the perfect gifts for a king, the most valuable and precious things that they could come across, the best that they had. I love what we see in the wise men. You know, these gifts for them, they thought that these gifts would earn them favor. That was a common thing. You go to a new king and you give him gifts that he might want you on his side. But what they didn't realize is that they were actually responding to how the Ancient of Days had been coming ever since the beginning of time. They did not earn with these gifts. They simply recognized who God was when he came. Just as us, we, I've heard this passage before and thought, I need to bring my best gifts to Jesus and I've missed it. Because what the Magi remind us of is no, they have been given the best gift. And then they respond to just give whatever they have. And they give what's worthy of a king. And then in verse 12, we see how God protects his son. He protects the wise men, he gives them in a dream, tells them to go another way. It's incredible how much God condescends to communicate to us in a way that will hear him. The wise men, what do they study? They study dreams, astrology, astronomy. What does God do in his mercy and humility? He, he lets them go by a star and leave by a dream. And I love in Hebrews when we're reminded that God in many times, in many ways, has spoke to us about his son, but now we get Jesus who teaches us. We get to know him and follow him. He came all the way down to communicate to us in the person of Christ so that we might understand. One other thing I love about this is just to see God's incredible sovereign control of history. I don't know how many of you have had pregnant wives, but I did not take mine on a donkey ride right before she had a baby. Just, just saying. Uh, it would have taken an edict from, we don't have a king, from the president, I guess, and probably someone coming and putting me in a police car. That's probably what it would have taken. And yet the census went forth. And God from all time knew Joseph would be with Mary who was from Bethlehem of the line of David. See these fulfillment, we don't always see looking forward, but when we look back, we see a God we can trust. Amen. He can get a pregnant woman to trust 
him and her husband to go to Bethlehem and then they don't even find anywhere indoors to have a baby. And yet, she worships and trusts. We need to hear that, Harvest. We need to stop trying to make God prove himself before we obey. And we need to look back at what he's already done. And that's part of what we get to do this morning. So verse 12, not only does God protect them, but I love this, he provides, they're about to need to run to Egypt to survive Herod's uh, infanticide. How do you think this poor family afforded that trip? There's a good chance that that gold and frankincense and myrrh might have funded their flight that protected them. I do. I think that's pretty likely that God not only was orchestrating all of this, but that he was protecting them. I love to see how God does all this. I think it's important because we can be so driven by our fears, and yet our God provides. My younger sister, Anna Marie, she spent about a year in South Sudan, before it was actually South Sudan. And she worked among those who were military chaplains, and so she was in danger somewhat regularly. Um, And you know, for your little sister, that's a hard thing for me. She loved it. She had a great time. And I learned a little bit more of what it meant to trust the Lord in a situation I couldn't understand, and she was fine. And then she came back to our hometown, Jonesboro, Arkansas, and got mugged outside a Chinese restaurant downtown. (laughs) We're the safest we can ever be in the Lord's hands. It's ridiculous that I think I can control and make my life, I tell you, it's a little harder to say this when my kid's life safe. And I've wanted to start asking a question. I've wanted to stop saying, what am I gonna protect myself and my kids from? And maybe I could ask a different question. What am I gonna protect them for? What am I gonna protect my life for? That we might be spent. And so we get to see, not just a story, we get to see their responses. What are we gonna do with Jesus' kingship? We see it in the wise men and those in Jerusalem and Herod. They respond in these incredibly different ways. What are we going to do? Are we going to be like Herod who insists on our own rule, on our own kingship? Am I going to demand that I make all the decisions? Am I going to assume that I get to make all the decisions and then get mad when I find out that I'm wrong? Am I going to fight for control? Matthew 6, 24 reminds us you can't have two masters. That's not an option. So for those of us who are Christians, we don't want to be Herod, right? We don't want that. And so that means we need to fight our tendency to be tyrants. We need to repent consistently that we think life is about our kingdom. This is not a New Year's and let's get it done and have a good year. This is, this is a days and end and why challenge. This, this is every day of our lives we need to repent of our desire to rule our own lives. And you know, it makes a lot of sense. For those who have not yet known Christ, I feel for you as as I used to think, it made sense if this world is all there is that I, I better trust myself, that's all I got. But for those of us who know Christ, we want you to know that, that this world is not all there is. That there is something more, that there is someone more who is worthy of your trust. 
If I ask myself the question, who has lied to me most, I know the answer is myself. But apart from Jesus, I don't know who else to try. I don't know who else is worth it. But look at the way he protects his people. Look at the way that he is a shepherd ruler. And I myself, when I rule my own life, am at best a tyrant. That insecurity creeps up over and again to prove to me what is true. You know, and it's this that we fight for as we grow as Christians. It's this that we fight for in those that don't yet know Christ. Not that we would overcome certain specific sins, but that we would get to the root of the issue. We're not just law breakers. We usurp God's authority and try to make our own law. I want to be king. And so yes, let's hate the sin in our lives, but let's hate the root of that sin, which says I will take your authority and I will decide. And let's love those around us who don't yet know Christ and focus on the real issue, the real issue that they don't know how great he is. Let's focus like the wise men did on doing whatever it takes to get in his presence so that we might be reminded of how worthy of our trust he truly is. And then we give as a response to that experience. So I pray that we would not be Herod, that we would fight against that. Secondly, will we, will we be like those in Jerusalem who worry most about our comfort in this world? I mentioned it before, but at one point, those people in Jerusalem wanted more than just the comfort of Herod not being troubled. At some point, they wanted that messianic promise of a savior to be true. They wanted to see him and experience him. They wanted to know him. And yet, either through fear of what might happen or worry of losing comfort, they slid into apathy. This next year, let's not make decisions out of fear and apathy. Let's be aware of places that our life has entered into that. Let's, let's repent. Let's turn back. Let's do whatever it takes not to be like that. And then lastly, obviously our desire is that we would respond like the wise men. That we would do whatever it takes, not just to know of, but to know Christ. To experience him. And to risk whatever it might take to give him all that we have with our lives in worship. We don't want to be at war with him like Herod. We don't want to just worry like those in Jerusalem. We want to worship him because we've seen him. And if that is your desire, there's a pattern of worship that I pray will become your normal. That every day as you think about this year and the day before you, that you might remember these brief reminders. If we want our lives to be patterned to worship, first we need to repent daily. Our Lord showed us how to do it in his prayer that he taught his disciples. He said to, for, for us to remember your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm not just wanting to be Herod every once in a while. It's a daily thing I must lay down. I must repent where my kingdom sneaks in again and again. And then secondly, I have a resolve for us, but it's more of a direction than a destination. I just imagine, I, I spent some time trying to imagine if we actually did this this year, what God might do. And it's that we might fight for communion with him more than control. That we might walk by faith in one whom we know. And that we might want to be with him more than anything else. 
that we might fight for communion with God, with him, in his presence. That's the only place we'll ever change. In his presence, he changes our desires. And then he gives us the strength in his Holy Spirit to live them out. You know, I love that our resolves, you know, I looked at a couple magazines on racks just the last couple days to, uh, to remind myself of the resolves of the world, most of which I still need to make. One of them said, make vegetables your hero. And I was like, what a terrible sermon that would be. Uh, no, Jesus is our hero. Uh, what a terrible, but anyway, I need most of those. But you know why I, you know why I fall short of those sometimes? Because I'm mostly making resolves about being a better king for my own life. What if we took it a step deeper this year and said, rather than control, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to be with Jesus. And then the, second, the last thing, that we would repent, resolve, and then just that we would risk. I have a letter I wanna read us very briefly. It's a uh, communist who was just released from prison. Uh, he had gone from America to Mexico and converted to communism uh, around the World War. I just blanked on which one. And he's breaking up with his fiance after he's released from prison. And this is what he writes her. We communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists, we don't have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We have been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are now dominated by a one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life that no, no amount of money can buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves to the great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in a small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There's one thing in which I am dead earnest about, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, and my mistress, my breath, and my meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold grows on me, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this fourth force that both drives and guides my life. I'm humbled and broken as I read that letter. That young man thought he met something worthy of hope and trust. And so not only do I pray that we would repent and resolve, I just pray that we would risk, that we would risk our comfort for his kingdom. But I want us to hear something as we finish this morning. God does not want us to be shamed into giving our best. He wants us to be invited to meet Emmanuel, God with us. We do not compete in commitment with that letter. What we do is we have something so much better behind the letter. We have what is true. We get to see through history and see how false and empty that hope that he had was. 
And yet we see a small band of men who had just abandoned their master when he was crucified, filled with the Holy Spirit that nothing would stop them throughout all of history because they knew their king, because they'd been with him. And so harvest my hope for us, my resolve, it's not that we would leave here saying, what more can I give? But we would leave here saying, you know, there's, there's no one that can serve two masters. But Romans 5.10 reminds us that our God came for his enemies. He came for us not once we cleaned it up and committed ourselves, not once we gave the right gifts, but before all of that. He initiated to us when we were yet his enemies. And he invited us into the kingdom that he won. The cause that's already victorious. So this morning as we step into communion, as we remember Christ's body broken for us, we remember his blood shed for us, it is not how much we are committed, but how much we know him. Let's respond to his kingship with exceedingly great joy and falling on our faces in worship because we get to be with him now and forevermore. And so here in just a moment, for those of you who know Christ, come and remember. Take these crackers and this juice and remember what the Lord has done in you. And let him do it every day in 2018. Don't wait for Sundays. And for those of you who don't yet know Christ, this table is to celebrate what he's done. We invite you to him. We invite you not just to know that people go to church, but know why to know why we might sing this song here in a moment with all of our hearts. So let me pray for us, and then the tables will be open. Lord, thank you for who you are. May you draw us to yourself. May we see you more clearly. May we be willing to travel hundreds of miles because of what you've already done for us. Lord, may we give our best in response to you who gave all for us. Lord, we praise you, we worship you in Jesus' name. We pray all this because of what you've done for us. Amen.